Welcome back to the Business Report. In this week's Spotlight, we are talking to a man that many Namibians already know, or I suppose think they know. Uh, we'll find out some interesting things about him, I'm sure. Mr. Patrick de Gouda. Hi, Patrick. Hey, man. Thanks for having me on. So let's go way, way back to young Patrick. Where, where was Patrick born? Where did you grow up? <laughs> Literally dull, rewind by 56 years. Uh, local boy, born and bred. Um, grew up in Kleinwintuk. That part of the that part of town, those my stomping grounds, went to Emmerhuchenau, then uh, St Paul's, then Concordia, and then finally matriculated at St Taurus. So a colourful school career. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there we go. And then straight to the army. Yeah, I, I was going to bring up the army because I didn't actually know about the army until this morning when I was doing a bit of uh, digging and research. But but we'll we'll get to that. I, I want to first know, as a young, I mean, we know Patrick as sort of very active, you know, very sporty. Right. Was that always the case? No, so my my dad was uh, was a very very decorated sportsman, um, also a very well known musician in town, and I think I kind of went the opposite direction. I, I, I hardly any sport at school. I played a little bit of hockey. I just played a little bit of water polo, mm. but that was really just to get out of the classroom environment. So I kind of <laughs> used the sport to get off the the school premises, um, and then only sport came in my late teens, early twenties. Okay, L- let's get into the into the army uh, career then. Uh, one parachute battalion. I, I can kind of now that I see it, I can picture you jumping out of airplanes. But right. <laughs> well, how did I mean that was obviously due to conscription at right. the time and yeah. So I mean, we at the time when I was at, at high school, the the military was was very entrenched. The military lifestyle was very entrenched. Um, and we had cadets on a Friday and stuff like that. And many of our teachers came to to uh, came to school wearing browns because they were en- enlisted at the time. Um, and everybody was conscripted, right? At 16, I think they kind of got the ball rolling. And when they finally came around to Centaurus and Standard 9, they asked what we wanted to do. And lots of guys knew exactly what they wanted to do. And I thought Parachute Battalion sounded mm. like a great idea. I had zero idea what I was getting <laughs> into. Um, but I opted for that and I went with that. And and, and that was kind of like it. It was the starter to what I consider my sporting phase in life. Okay. So so the army then brought sport to the fore. Yeah, I mean I was I was small at school. I still am small of stature now, but I, w- I was like 61 or 62 kilos at school and went to parachute battalion, very, very physical culture. I had no idea what I was in for, but um I managed to get through it. I managed to get through basics and then through parachute battalion, uh PT course, jump course, etc. got my wings and then uh, kind of embarked on a on like a very physical lifestyle. You know, the second year army um did what was the I think the second version of what was then the old mutual desert triathlon at the coast which is now the sandman mm. right so the very very early days of that half marathon 70k bike ride uh, a mile swim or something like that and then that gave rise to like a slew of other things uh, went from triathlon into cycling and then into some running and backwards and forwards but because of that and because of the uh, because of the lessons i was taught at, at parachute battalion about my it was like a real eye-opener about mm. my physical capacity and the fact that i had clearly had like a uh, above average endurance and you know strong mind from strong mindset from from the battalion it was kind of like an eye opener and i realized there was so much i could do mm. um and that's kind of it's it's paved the way for me in many ways okay talking about the, the desert triathlon were you then stationed in namibia not not in south africa 
So first year of my conscription was in South Africa, um, originally at Parachute Battalion in Bloemfontein, then to Otsuan for Junior Leader School, then back to Parachute Battalion for PD course, jump course, and then back to Otsuan for the rest of the year. And then we were brought to Two Swaspes, which is now Leipitzvalle. And Mm -hmm. I spent my second year in in Namibia and some of that was deployed, some of that was on base. And at the end of that year, I'd I'd had quite a big injury, um, a parachute um, accident and, and quite a sizable injury. And so I was taken off active active duty I suppose um, and then saw this triathlon mm. and thought wow that seems like a really good idea I was used to running 21k's and so the 21k <laughs> seemed like a formality the bike ride and the swim I kind of uh, tapped into my water polo days and thought I can get through that and 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 that was the start of things for me okay looking at the army I mean obviously there, there's the danger of of glorifying those days a little right. bit too much sometimes and and the conscription and you know not everybody wanted to be conscripted but there are a lot of people who might not have necessarily wanted to be conscripted, but still say that those were definitely formative formative years. And I mean, you're talking about the sport, but but mentally, how did those two years sort of, you know, set you up for the rest of your life? It was huge for me. I mean, in, in, in hindsight and, and, and retrospectively, I look at that time and I think in many ways, so from a political point of view, the army uh, was less than savvy. They, mm. they, you know, there was a political agenda at the time that was not cool. Um, and we were really just, pawns in like a bigger game and at 18 you don't realize that i saw a photograph of myself the other day um at 19 i think and i'm in uniform and i've got my corporal stripes on and 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 my instructor's whistle on and i have rank but i look like a child i mean i look like a 19 year old Mm. boy you look at the kids that are playing you know uh under 19 sport yet we were in this position where we were expected to go and fight an unseen enemy. So that was the one component of it. And I think in many ways we were duped, but that's a completely separate discussion. But, but the physical aspect, the, 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 the life lessons that I was taught and that I learned and that I had to embrace because there, there really wasn't a get out of jail mm. free card, right? Short of uh, dodging conscription <laughs> and then going to jail, right? Um, those lessons have stood me in such good stead all the way till today. In fact, the lessons I learned at 18, I employ in my daily thinking now when it comes to when it comes to punctuality, when it comes to discipline, when it comes to personal presentation, although I'm standing here in, in, in shorts and a t-shirt, um, there are some very, very valuable things that I learned. And, and in that regard, I think national conscription or national service um, was a really valuable tool mm-hmm. in the lives of all of the guys that went through that system. And you'll hear many guys say, I wish we still had that because I think it's left a big gap for young men specifically. Um, and I see that downfall or, or, or rather that breakdown in society now. There's a lot of, there's a lot of guys that leave school. And, I'm, and I'm, I'm not talking about girls. I'm talking just about young men that leave school and have no idea about where they want to be and what they want to mm-hmm. do. And so you know, it's become popular, these gap, uh, like, like gap years that are, that are, um, Formal, formalized gap years mm. where you go and you join an institution or an organization and you do something like a curriculum for a year just to find your direction. So for me personally, it had huge, huge value, value and the, the lessons I learned then I continue to employ today. We had to touch on the the sort of, you know, young men and, and some of the problems mm. that we're seeing in society uh, in a little bit, but just for, for I suppose a, a personal question for me because I've got them as well, and you know anyone who knows knows you knows that you are heavily tattooed. Uh, was the army the beginning of tattoos? Was there a tattoo culture in the army in those days? 
No, in fact, I think it was frowned upon. But my dad, so my dad came from the tough streets of, of Hilbrow and, and, and hung around with the Portuguese and the Lebanese crowd then. And, and he got tattooed at 14. He had this big <laughs> eagle put on his right shoulder and he had it uh, colored in, in, in the colors of South Africa. And from what I understand, my, my late grandmother beat him to within an inch <laughs> of his life. And he, he was adamant that we'd never get tattooed. So in the army, there was no tattoo culture, but it was certainly something that resonated with me and mm. that spoke to me. And so my, my tattoo journey started, I think, around 21 or 22 or something like that. And in many ways, I think some of the, some of the tattoo stuff was, was me looking for identity, mm. looking for connection. Um, and in other ways, there, there's been a, a lot of the stuff that I have on me are more timestamps uh, for big events in my life. Kind of, yeah, I, I suppose timestamps is the best way mm. to describe them. Okay, speaking about some of those uh, big events, uh, you obviously, you mentioned triathlon and running. Uh, you've, you've done Ironman. Uh, what, what would you say are some of the sort of biggest sporting events? Um, I, I was fortunate enough to represent Namibia in, in the very sort of early years of, of Namibia being independent as a cyclist and as, in tri, as a triathlete. And so I went to the, uh, I went to the all African games, I think in 1990, um, I was very fortunate to go to the Melbourne Commonwealth games as an administrator, not as an athlete. And then also to the Beijing Olympics also as an administrator. Um, for me personally, I think the, the most powerful thing I've done and maybe the thing that stretched me the most uh, was walking to Swak of Munt with, mm. with my good friend Jock in, I think in the middle of COVID somewhere. So eight, eight and a half days. Um, and that was like a real journey of, of, of self-discovery. I, I wanted very specific things from that. Um, I wanted to do something. So I'm, I'm not sure whether you're familiar with the term Masogi, but mm-hmm. there's, there's two rules. The, the one is that there should be at least a 50% chance of failure. <laughs> the other rule is don't die, right? And, um, and this was kind of out there enough. I had no idea whether we'd make it. I had no idea how long it would take us. Mm. Um, and in terms of stretching me physically, spiritually, mentally, I think that's probably the biggest thing I've done. And because of that, I've undertaken to do something hard annually, something that really tests my limits, um, again, physically, spiritually, mentally, and grows me in that regard. Okay. Uh, because we have sort of in that time of the year, and I've been doing a lot of interviews with those sorts of people, uh, Desert Dash? On the mic again. It's yeah. become my it's become my standard <laughs> place. I I I was fortunate enough to ride the Desert Dash. I think in three sort of different iterations. Mm-hmm. All of them as as two man endeavors um, of, of the various formats. It's not for me. Um, it's I have a short attention span. So triathlon was great <laughs> because I was done in two or three hours. Whereas Desert Dash is just like, and I say that in the context of I walked to Swak of Munt. Mm-hmm. That also took forever. It's not my thing, though, but I, I get huge satisfaction from spending that time on the mic and, and setting, setting off people at the Grove yeah. on Friday afternoon and then welcoming them across the finish line 24 hours later. There's big satisfaction in that and big connection in that and huge respect to what the people at the Dash do, whether it's a four, you know, whether it's four person or two mm. person or solo. Was that something you, you sort of always saw or did, you know, the cycling commentary almost catch you by surprise? Completely by surprise. I had, I had no idea. And, and in fact, it started at motocross. I remember I, uh, I was involved with motocross a couple of decades ago and I remember the club races and there was no commentary and somebody stuck a mic in my hand and said, well, why don't you say something? And, and that kind of grew organically to, I think we did an auction one evening. Grant Langston was here and we did an auction and we auctioned off his gear. And I realized I had some sort of capacity for this. And so that kind of grew from motocross races and then my first cycle races to the point now where, where I'm introduced um, and I'm, I'm always a little embarrassed, but I'm introduced as the, the voice of cycling in <laughs> Namibia. So completely organically, I had no idea that I'd end up behind a mic 
entertaining mm. people at their chosen sport. Okay, let's go. Let's go back then. You know, army's finished. Uh, I know there was a uh, period of of diamond diving, commercial <laughs> diamond diving. Uh, was that straight after the army, or was there a, a gap in between? No. So there was a there there was a window there. I went to um, I left after the army. I spent a year in the states uh, racing and working. Then came back, did a short stint here um, with what was then Health and Racket. Mm-hmm. which is now Virgin Active. I did a sales stint with them, then went back to the States in 94, did some more racing, came back, then left for the West Coast in the late, well, I'd need to reframe it quickly, around 96. I did my commercial dive course in 96. Um, worked as a body piercer at Metal Machine in Cape Town <laughs> whilst I was doing that to make some money on the side and then moved to the West Coast for five years and, and, and worked, on the, worked on the dive boats. Then came back, got involved in some nightclubs locally, um, spent a while there, and then did a, a whole bunch of like odd things before finding my way back into cycle retail. Mm, and then, so you then opened uh, Psychology Cycles. Uh, with, 2004, with, with January shop. 2004, yeah. Psychology Cycles. And then in winter of, I need to get this right, in March of 2006, Frank, who owned Cycletech, um, we, we supported the team in Melbourne. So Frank was the team manager, I was the team mechanic. We did the Argus with them and then flew to Melbourne and, and did the Commonwealth Games together. And... Um, we had a lot of time in the car. We drove the team bikes from Cape Town straight off to the Argus. We drove them to Johannesburg through the night to meet the sure. team the next morning. Had a lot of time to talk in the car. And we were both, we were both struggling at the time. Business was difficult. Mm. And, and we realized that we were better off as a combined force. And so psychology, I joined Cycletech in, uh, in August 2007. And um, that was all the way up until March this year. I've been, I've been at Cycletech for the last 16 years. Because I remember at the, at the time, you know, some people sort of almost saw it coming out of left field as well, you know, like these two competitors. Um, but I, I, in the back of my head, I remember a conversation that I'm, I had with you uh, where, where you'd actually said to me, yes, you know, it, it makes sense. Why compete when you can work together to, to sort of not just you know, grow the business, but also help the entire industry. 100%. And I mean, there was a time, it, it, it was a difficult time. The first six months we traded as a psych, cycle tech psychology, which was quite confusing for, for the consumer. But the reality was that Frank had this incredible skill set and I had an equally strong skill set in an opposite direction. And so we were just really complementary of each other. And, and for 16 years, we, we had an, an epic, epic partnership and we had the best of times at, uh, at, at cycle tech. And it, it's, a, it's a season that I look back on very, very fondly. And I mean, you're wearing the shirt, not your own one, not the Damascus shirt, but you're wearing the CrossFit shirt. Where did that journey start? So we, we were watching ESPN in 2012 and saw at the, at the time the CrossFit Games, which was in its infancy, 2012. And, and um, I'd been doing Xterra and Alska had been doing uh, some, some bodybuilding shows and stuff. And we were looking for a new challenge. And we saw, we saw the CrossFit Games on ESPN. And then lo and behold, a couple of months later, PD and Max opened Namibia's first CrossFit box, uh, CrossFit Plus 264. And, um, and it was just, it was a really good fit for us. And as, I, as we sort of embarked on this, this journey, which was all about doing CrossFit ourselves, I realized just how much I enjoy coaching and how much... Um, how much pleasure it gives me and how much fulfillment it gives me. And so my, I, I started my CrossFit coaching journey in 2015, I think, did my, my level one cert, and that sort of just kept going. And then in 2018, Max and I talked. Um, Max is no longer in the country. He's in Germany, but Max and I talked, and we felt it was time to open another box. And I had this really clear vision about CrossFit Damascus, why Damascus, um, what we wanted to do, what we wanted to achieve. And so we'll be six years old in, in coming March. Hmm. So – 
I've, I've never done CrossFit myself, so I don't know if it's a CrossFit thing, but sort of watching, you know, the Damascus box, speaking to people who go to the box uh, and, and are coached by you, it seems that Damascus is more than just sort of bodily health. There, there seems to be, when you talk about being a coach, it looks like you, you know, you're not just building up people's bodies at Damascus from what I can see from social media. And like I say, people I speak to, there's a holistic element to it. That's, I mean, that's a great summary of where, where we're at. So, so on the wall, when you walk in at the box, Proverbs 27, 17, um, iron sharpens iron, which is a shortened version, but iron sharpens iron. We have a massively high level of accountability. Limey will know. And, and, um, yeah, so super, super high accountability. The driver behind that is, and I was, as I was driving over here, I thought, are you going to ask me what my why is? And, and the why is we wanted to make people better. Mm-hmm. And, and so CrossFit, the, the methodology, and it's important that people understand the methodology and the sport are two different things. So to CrossFit, the methodology is a training methodology, whereas CrossFit, the sport is like rugby and bowls and anything else. It's mm-hmm. a sporting version of that. But the methodology is super powerful because it, because it, um, it's super, super effective and efficient. Um, and it's safe, believe it or not, the people that do get injured often get injured because they don't follow the game plan. But the big driver for us was that we wanted to make people better. We wanted to make people better on every level. And what, what's happened at Damascus organically, uh, we're around 250 members, but every, it's, it's all in and everybody's in for everybody else. Mm. So it, it, it's a very, very cohesive community. A friend of mine said, people have an emotional contract with us, and I thought about that, and, and it's true. I think people come there, it's a safe haven. Um, we have a rule set on the wall. We don't celebrate anything other than humanity. Like the only rule there is, if you come through the door, is don't be a chop. Um, that's the only rule. Uh, we don't care where you come from. We don't care what your religious uh, or sporting affiliations are or what your, pre- it, it doesn't matter. The only rule is come in and be respectful of the other people and let's build each other up. And we see that on a daily basis. So it's a, it's a super, super powerful platform. Okay. Uh, so you were involved in the dads, boys and masculinity mm. conference, uh, and you've sort of started a another journey or another tangent uh, in, in your life with, with the motivational aspect. Did that grow from uh, Damascus or was it something that grew n- sort of next to and, and influenced Damascus? I, I, I think it's across a couple of levels. I think they're all sort of tied into each other. I, I have a very clear understanding um, of the work I need to do here and, and the work that's expected of me. Um, and I'm, I'm a natural leader. It's how I'm put together. It's what my makeup is. And, and, and um, I think there are lots of holes in our game as a society, particularly where men are concerned. And so there, I, I remember in March when, when Craig was here and, and we did the masculinity conference, there was a lot of pushback about specifically about toxic masculinity. Mm. But we, I'm intent on changing that narrative because I believe that positive masculinity is a massive driver and it's a, it, it's a big part of the foundation culturally and, and, and societally of, of what we should be doing. And so the one has sort of grown from the other. I have, lots, I have lots of very, very strong opinions about things. Mm. Um, I've also learned to listen, and so I'm, I'm happy to have dialogue and, and, and hear people out. But I believe that we, have lots of, that we have lots of work to do as men in a Namibian culture. Lots of guys that are growing up without father figures, et cetera, et cetera. And so this has come from various angles. I've, I reluctantly refer to myself as a motivational or an inspirational speaker or a life coach. Um, 
I just feel I have I have work to do, and and the the new platform, this new season where I'm engaging with uh, with corporates and with organisations, we're doing sort of wellness uh, wellness training and stuff like that, and then I'm I'm doing some leadership stuff. I have Phoenix Leadership Solutions on the sideline, and I'm uh, I'm I'm collaborating with a friend of mine, Aaron Scutia, a little business called Cavey Consulting. Um, but all of these things tie together and give me this very, very powerful platform. When, I, when I'm at the dash and behind the microphone or at the Paratus Namibian Psycho Classic, I have this super, super powerful platform. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the power of the spoken word comes with huge responsibility because it brings life or it brings death. It's either or. There's no middle ground there, yeah. right? Um, and, and I've realized how powerful that is and how privileged that is. And, and so I'm acutely aware of the message I'm sending and the words I'm speaking over particular situations. But to answer your question, it's come from various angles, I suppose. And they, they all at least support each other. They so. do. I, I, I think there's lots of synergy between Damascus and between my public speaking and, and, and the microphone and uh, voiceovers. And, and, and then just being, you know, Vintuk is a small place. Um, and, and I've lived the better part of, I don't know, three and a half decades, almost four decades, I've lived in a, in a reasonably public space. Mm. Um, and I feel very, very fortunate to have this platform and to be able to make a difference in people's lives. And, and, and just the idea that what comes out of my mouth, again, the, 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 the bar would be is, am I speaking life over a situation or am I speaking death over a mm. situation? And so I'm, yeah, it, it, it's been an incredible ride so far. <laughs> so we've spoken about the, the, the sort of toxic and positive masculinity, uh, mentioned the idea that there's sort of no, uh, national service or, or you know, mm. no identity building time for young boys, young men when they when they get out of school. It it's obviously really really nuanced and it's uh, very very complicated. But I I'm going to put you on the spot mm-hmm. as our as our final question. Right. And when it comes to boys and men mm. and the situation that we find ourselves in, how do we fix it? So if, if you look at other cultures, and, and when I say other cultures, maybe non-Western cultures, there are rites of passages for boys. And, and, and most often those would start around puberty and then kind of end, you know, as, as boys become men and, they, and, and, and they're brought in by the, you know, the, the village elders or the tribe elders or whatever. And I think that's hugely lacking in our setup. And when I say our setup, it's kind of like a, a, a blanket a blanket statement um, starts at home. Mm. I, I, I do believe it starts at home. I, I, I see so many people um, that outsource the things that they should be taken care of, and particularly. So, so let's talk about fathers, fathers and sons, because we're talking about masculinity. Um, I believe it starts at home. I don't believe that uh, that the values of of discipline and respect are taught at schools. I think they're bookended at schools, but I think it starts at home. And unfortunately, a lot of fathers are fighting for survival. You know, mm-hmm. they're at the office for, for long hours. They've maybe had poor role models themselves. And so there's this, but that's all a lot of excuse making, right? That's like could have, should have, would have. It starts, it, it literally starts with you and me making, mm-hmm. deciding to make a change in our personal lives, in our personal homes and holding each other accountable. I said this to, I think I was in the, in, in the studio with Jack and Odile and I, and I said this at the time. I think men are great at having guys buy into their own brand of BS, right? Like <laughs> surrounding ourselves with yes men. Whereas, and I don't know what women do in that regard, but, but guys are great at that. Like we, we, we surround ourselves with guys that, that, that kind of help us underpin our own narrative mm. and help us believe we our, our own brand of nonsense. Whereas if we surround ourselves with men that strive for a higher standard, that set the bar higher. And I did an interesting presentation a couple of days ago, uh, Good to Great. 
uh, I think Jim Collins is the author, Good to Great. So there's this this thing, it's good enough, right? Mediocrity is celebrated and, and, and holding ourselves to a higher standard takes work. But I think we owe it to ourselves mm-hmm. and we owe it to the next generation of Namibian, what are currently boys or young men, that we would say, I know where we're going, follow me, you know, and, 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 um, and building good values and building good culture into these guys so that they can do that for the next generation. And I do believe it starts at liter- the saying that charity starts at home. I think good, good culture starts mm-hmm. at home too. Patrick, I've kept you way longer than I'm supposed to <laughs> keep you. And I could carry on going at the clock. 2337. We're, yeah, we were good. aiming for sevens. Right. Good luck <laughs> I with that. Keep, I could keep going for the rest of the day. Probably. I'm also very sure that this isn't the, the end of your, I'm looking forward to seeing what the next tangent in, in Patrick's <laughs> life is. And we'll talk about that when it happens as well. But yeah, thanks so much for your time. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on great opportunity.